So as I mentioned, uh, we are in a peculiar season in the church calendar right now. Uh, This is the second Sunday before Advent. It's a strange season in the church year. Uh, Next week is Christ the King Sunday, and that is the climax of of the entire church year. And then the next week after that will be the first week in Advent, which begins a new year. So as some have said, this is midnight of the church year. N.T. Wright, and I really like this, I just came across this this last week, but he refers to this season that we're now in as Kingdom Sundays. I really like that, because Kingdom Sundays sounds a lot more, I don't know, churchy and cool than just referring to this season as pre-Advent. And it makes sense, right? Because just a few weeks ago, we celebrated All Saints Sunday, and and next week we will proclaim that Christ is King over all. And all throughout these readings, we are like a bride waiting for her groom to come. We are the church, awaiting the second coming of the Messiah. And I don't know about you, friends, but I want him to come very soon. Very, very soon. I'm getting laughter from that, yes. It's true, like I want Christ to come back so quickly. 2020, especially, has just brought that prayer to the forefront of my mind quite often. You know, just this week, in the last six days, I've learned of six people in my circles who've contracted COVID. And I'm sure some of you even have friends, um, beloved dear ones, who've contracted this awful virus. And most of the people I know uh, are doing fine, uh, but there, there is at least one individual who's in the ICU right now. We're going to be praying for them in our prayers to the people. So I think right now, the call for all of us is to enter into the steady prayer of Advent which is Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. Call, call Carl, uh, Carl Barth uh, is a great theologian of the church, and he says that of all the church seasons uh, that we have, all the beautiful seasons that we have, Advent is the most authentic one to the church's true identity. He says the church has no other time in the world than Advent, You see, friends, all year round, we live in the age between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. The first coming, when Jesus came and recruited and gathered and equipped the saints for the work in the kingdom. And then that second coming, in, in which he will come again and require an account from all of us on how we have indeed put those gifts to use over the course of our lives. And perhaps there's no parable that makes this more clear than the one that we just read this morning from Matthew's gospel. And some of you might hear this story, some of us might be listening to this story, this parable of the talents, and we might think, oh my goodness, this is intense. Like, what a wild and scary story this is. I mean, yeah, we have two servants who enter into paradise, that's great, but then we have this other servant who doesn't lose the master's money, he still has it, but nonetheless is, is called a wicked and lazy servant, and he's cast out into the outer darkness. That is an eternity in hell. And as much as I'd love to skip over the story of this, uh, skip over this, this isn't exactly some unknown or obscure or debated um, parable in Jesus' ministry. No, this, is, uh, this teaching, this parable, is a part of the climax of Jesus' entire teaching. In fact, there's only one story that follows this one before Jesus is handed over uh, to be crucified, and that's the, par- that's the story of the final judgment, when God will come to separate the sheep from the goats, a passage that we'll look at next week. 
Now, every week, the Church Universal holds up this book and reads from the gospel. And we declare together, as the people of God, we say that this is the gospel of the Lord. In other words, this is good news to you and to me. You see, friends, Jesus tells scary stories like this one because he loves us. He tells stories like this to us because he wants to save you and he wants to save me from our messed up priorities, from our destructive habits, our messy addictions. And what he wants to do instead is he wants to give us abundant life. He is the God of grace who points the way to the joy of his heavenly kingdom which we heard about in this parable. So let's dive into it, shall we? I'm going to be moving through this in three different movements. So this is the parable of a rich master who gives out a portion of his fortune to three servants. To one servant uh, gets five talents, another servant gets three talents, and another one. Now this is an abundant amount of money. This is a lot, a lot of money. Uh, In fact, it's rather unfortunate that the Greek word for this amount of money is talent. Like, that's, that's kind of unfortunate for us because you and I, as English speakers, when we hear the word talent, we think of like a a cute little nifty ability, you know, almost like, like party tricks or something, right? Like, we think of, of carving wood or, um, you know, juggling balls or making balloon animals. Um, at the first service, I, I teased Aaron uh, and one of his really beautiful talents of bad dad jokes. Like, you're really good at that. You know, like, that's a beautiful talent that you have, brother. But in the Greek, the word for talent is very different. It's a massive amount of money. So a couple of months ago, I, I preached on a story, and, and in it was a denarius. People were, were paid a denarius. And do you remember how much a, a denarius is? A denarius is the equivalent of one entire day's worth of work. So that's great, right? Uh, a denarius is awesome. Well, a talent is 10,000 denarii. Like, that's a lot, right? And I'll do the math for you. Like, that's the equivalent of basically 30 years' worth of work. And that's what the master entrusts even the smallest of these um, servants. 30 years worth of work. You see, the master is not giving these servants juggling balls. He's not giving them a bag of balloon animals and saying, hey, go and have fun there. No, he, even the one who is entrusted with just one talent is being entrusted with a massive responsibility. And uh, I I won't speak for everybody in the room, but like, I'm never going to see money like that. Like, that's incredible, you know? Like, what an, enti- what an amazing uh, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that these servants are being given. Now, let's see what they actually do with it, shall we? So verse 16. We see that the first servant goes at once, trades with them, and then makes five talents more. Now, I don't want you to miss, miss this, but did you see that there's three things that the, the servant does? So three things. First of all, he goes at once. He, we could have translated this, he goes immediately. Like he's pumped. He's excited. He's thrilled. He sees this massive amount of money. He gets five talents. And he's like, oh my goodness, like I want to see what I can do with this. Imagine having that kind of resources at your fingertips. And so what does he do? He, he's running through the marketplace going, I've got millions of dollars. Like what are we going to be able to do with this? And then the second thing that he does is he trades with it. 
He starts putting it at work. You see, this is someone who knows the structures and the systems of that day. He knows how the marketplaces work. He knows how the economies work. And he wants to multiply the master's resources. He's excited about this. He's pumped. And then thirdly, he made five talents more. He doubles it. Now, the original language of that phrase isn't exactly he just made five talents more. The word for that is he won five talents. He won. There's like a a celebratory sort of like victory that this servant is experiencing here. So if we were actually to to flip back to uh, in Matthew's gospel to chapter, I, I think it's like 18 or something like that. There's a place where Jesus uses that same word, uh, won, winning. And he uses it when he's talking about a brother or a sister who's wandered away from the Lord and they've been brought back. Do you remember what he says there? He says, when you've brought them back, you have won that individual. There is a celebration that is associated with that. So I don't know. I wonder if maybe this victory, I wonder if one way to interpret the talents here is the victory of human souls, of bringing back human hearts to the Lord, a celebratory, feast-worthy, exciting, adventurous occasion. What if that's what's going on here? Well, the second, ser- uh, the second servant, he also does the same thing. He doubles his money. He wins as well. But what about the third? What does the third servant do? Well, he also does three different actions. He who received one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Oh, my gosh. Like, how shameful. How, how wicked. How... It, it, it's almost comical how, how much this contrasts with the three actions of the first two servants. Instead of going away, this guy, or instead of going at once, this guy goes away. Instead of working and trading, this guy digs a hole. Instead of winning, do you see what this guy does? He hides. He's hiding. Unlike those eager servants, the first two, this guy, he takes no risks whatsoever. He has zero imagination for increasing this massive treasure that he's sitting on. Here he is. He's sitting on 30 years worth of cash, and he can't even think of one measly little way of increasing it. As we see from the master's rebuke later, he could have even just stuck it in the bank and just generated, you know, I don't know, 0.05 interest on this or something like that. But no, he doesn't even do that. And I don't know, maybe, maybe this is unfair. You know, maybe it's unfair for me to pick on him. Maybe he does actually have ideas. Maybe he is kind of a creative dude uh, in this sort of matter. But in the end, what this man worships is his own safety. His own safety. Even if he has the ideas, his own safety, his, his love of his own self, his comfort, his lifestyle is holding him back from experiencing the riches and the adventure that God has prevent, that the master has presented him with. When this man surveys the great opportunities of the world, the marketplaces and the economies of the world, he doesn't see tremendous potential or great adventures. Instead, he sees dangers. He sees threats to himself. He starts cowering in fear. He sees danger. Now, the other two servants, they live in the same world as he does. They see the same dangers. They see the same risks. And it's, it's entirely possible that these first two servants... They could have lost it. They could have lost this money. They could have gone to the marketplace. They could have wheeled and dealed with the talents and all that sort of stuff, and they could have whittled it down to zero. But do you know what they still would have had? They would have had an awesome story. 
Like, wouldn't you want to hear that? Wouldn't you want to hear someone who has, uh, you know, 15 million or $150 million or whatever, like, wouldn't you want to hear how they lost all of that? Like, I want to buy that guy a beard. I want to sit down and be like, and then what happened? Oh my goodness, and then what happened? And then what happened? You know, and I have some friends who've been in situations like that, and it's just fascinating to hear the lessons they've learned from that uh, and the way in which they're, they're even possibly eager about trying these things again. Like, it is a killer story. And when I hear and think about the, the character of the master in this story and the, and the way that it compares with, with the masters in, in some of the other parables, I think that he would have wanted to hear these stories as well. You know, later we hear that this is a, a master who's able to reap where he hasn't even sown. In other words, he's able to make something out of nothing. Do you think that losing some of these talents would have been that big of a deal to him? I mean, maybe, but I think he would really want to hear that story as well. He wants to know that his servants are taking those kinds of risks, that they love him that much, that they're willing to risk that uh, for the sake of him. Well, as for this last servant, there is no killer story that he has. No, all that he has collected over his experience is some dirty stains on his jeans from, from digging holes and all of that. Well, after a long time, eventually the master comes back home. And the master expects a report. So the first servant comes up to him, and he's excited. He's pumped. He's proud. He is, uh, and it's a holy pride. He's not arrogant about this. You know, it's like a child coming up to their father. Like, guess what? And he says, look, the, the, the things that you've given me, the things that originated from you, the grace that you gave me, the opportunity that you gave me, the money that you gave me, guess what? I doubled it. I earned five talents more. Like, how exciting is that, that he says. And even though that the amount from the first servant and the second servant are different, the five and the two, the master gives the same exact affirming words to both of these servants. Well done. Well done. Great job, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, <laughs> but I'll set you over much. Isn't it funny, like, the, the master says in this situation, I've set you over a middle, or after a little, after we've talked about how much a talent is actually worth. For him to say that five talents is a little, what kind of master is this? What kind of resources does he have at his disposal? And as we clearly know, this is a parable comparing us to the, the age to come. To consider this, only just a little, in the pocket of the master, what in the world is this next age to come going to look, at, look like? What sort of worlds are we going to explore? What sort of resources is God going to put at our disposal in order to have fun and explore and, and learn more about who he is? Oh, how exciting is that? There's so much joy and humor and excitement in the master's voice that we, hear, that we see here. And the thrill of the first two servants, the excitement that these servants have, their joy and their pride in coming forth to the masters is mirrored back to them by the master. He reciprocates this joy back to them. He's delighted. He's also proud of them. He's giddy too. He says, enter into my joy. Come, let us continue our partnership. Let us continue to, to, to be in relationship with, uh, with, with each other. Let's see what else we can do, the master's saying here. But then he turns his attention to the third servant the third servant. And here we hear a very different report. The third servant says this in verse 25, I know that you are a hard man, reaping where you don't sow, gathering where you haven't even scattered seed. And then he tells him about the hole digging project that he did. And then he says, here, here, you know, just imagine him just throwing it out on the table. Have what is yours. 
you see what's happening here in this language? This servant is actually blaming the master for his lack of fruitfulness. This servant, and this is why he's wicked, because he's actually pointing in the master's face, saying that it's his fault. I know that you're a hard man. I know that you're the omnipotent one. I know that you do the impossible. You make seed grow where where no one else has ever done that before. It's because of who you are. That's why I was all sheltered up. That's why I didn't do a single thing. It's because you are the hard man. This man has the audacity to play the victim card to this generous master. You know, in reality, if he knew the master, if he truly knew the master, then he would, want to, then he would know what the master wants. And he would want to take chances. He would want to go to work. He'd want to go in the marketplace and wheel and deal. He would at least want to try. That's what the master gets at when he's talking about the whole bank thing. He's like, if you knew me, if you actually did know me, you would have done this. And isn't it interesting that in the master's response, he actually repeats back to the servant a lot of what the servant says, except for the phrase, I am a hard man. The master doesn't say that back to him. No, because this is a generous God of grace. Yes, he is hardened that he has rules, but he is a God of love. This is a, this is a story that begins with grace. If he loved the master, if the servant loved the master, he would have been thrilled to embark on this adventure. He would have been thrilled to none other to please his master. But because of his laziness, his wickedness, and yes, even his lack of love for the master, he is cast into the outer darkness. When you think about the, the comparison between these two, uh, brings to mind the, uh, between the, the first two servants and the third, kind of brings to mind words of this poet. Love It has no fear of risk. Love has no fear of risk. Think about those who you've loved in your life. What sort of risks have you made for those individuals? Well, here we see it in the ultimate way. These servants, these first two, they risked it all. They risked 100% of what they had. Why? Because of the love for the master, wanting to please him wanting to hear those words of affirmation spoken over them. Well, some of you know this uh, about me. You know that uh, when I was a, a little kid, my, my father passed away. Uh, he kind of, he pieced out on life, uh, we'll say. And I would give absolutely anything to talk to him again. I would love it if he just walked through these doors right here and sat down. I, was able, I would be able to talk to him. And do you know what we would talk about? We wouldn't talk about the weather, <laughs> like, we wouldn't talk about that at all. I'd want to share about my life with him. I'd want to say, hey, here's, here's what's happened in the last 32 years. You know, I'd want to talk to him about uh, my experiences at school. I'd want to talk to him about um, that, that little business that I started in, in Alabama. I'd want, to, I'd want to hear his thoughts on that. I'd want to bring him here, and I'd want to show him restoration. Uh, you know, he wasn't really a church-going guy, but I'd, I'd want him to see this. I'd want him to see this. Most of all, I'd be thrilled to introduce him to my beautiful, amazing wife. I'd want him to meet her. I'd want him to hear her stories. I'd want him to, to meet my children and just see how awesome they are, how intelligent they are, how, how beautiful they are, how fun they are. I want him to know all of that. Why? Why would I want to share that with him? Well, you know. I want him to say, son, good work. I am proud of you. Wow. Good work. Well done. But you know what? 
as amazing of an experience that is, is as much as I kind of fantasize about that every now and then, that is nothing in comparison to the way in which I want to hear my maker, my father in heaven, declare those words over me. And friends, I think all of you, every single one of you in this room, from the youngest to the oldest, is looking for the same thing. I think all of us are driven by that fundamental desire. I think all of our victories can be attributed to that in our lives. I think all of our failures in our lives can be attributed to that in our life. Our desire to want to please our Father in heaven. We want to hear those words spoken over us, don't we? Before the foundations of the world were laid down, he had you in mind. He is the one who knit you together in your mother's womb. And your name is written on the palm of his hand. He thinks about you all the time. You see, friends, we all want to hear the affirming words of our Father in heaven. And I believe that today, Jesus is telling each one of us that we have been given a tremendous opportunity. Each one of us have been given the equivalent of, of 30 years at least worth of wages. Some of us even more than that. Out of his abundant love, we have been given a tremendous gift of grace. Each of you, we've been washed by the waters of baptism. We've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit. We've been equipped with his generous gifts of, of hospitality and, and, and generosity and, and encouragement. We have amazing, gracious gifts just even within this room right now and, and tuning in. You know, this is an amazing congregation to be a part of. And that's another gift that we have. We have the gift of family. We have the gift of this congregation itself, and we have been equipped by the Holy Spirit to go out and to multiply his grace in whatever context, in whatever circles, in whatever neighborhoods or households we might find ourselves in. But our temptation is no different than those servants. We are facing the same exact temptation, especially these days. Because of coronavirus, because of COVID, we are all being forced away. We are all being forced to dig holes, basically, you know, we could hide behind our screens, dig a hole there, you know, binge watch whatever on, on Netflix or whatever. Like, we're all facing these temptations to go away, dig a hole, and hide the graces that God has so generously given us. Right? Don't you feel that? Don't you just want to turn everything off, you know, and just kind of hide and hunker down for a while and just completely disengage from the world? I feel that temptation. The people of God, this is not a season of hiding. And let me be clear, I'm not talking about ignoring the science of COVID. Obviously, I think we should all continue to be social distancing and wearing our masks and, and avoiding mass crowds and not doing stupid stuff like that. COVID is real, and we need to be smart about it. No, what I'm saying is that we need to prayerfully and wisely use our God-given imaginations to radically multiply the grace that he has given us. Take the risk of picking up the phone and calling your next-door neighbor. Who cares if you've never talked to them before? Just call them up. Take the risk. What do you have to lose, right? What do you have to lose? And even if you do lose, awesome story. Let's hear it. Like, let's talk about it. Let's learn from it, right? Or use the resources that you have, whatever those might be, resources of money, resources of time, resources of talents, resources of silly dad jokes. I don't know. Use whatever resources you have to multiply the grace, to bring joy and the light of Christ in whatever circumstance you might find yourselves in. Because friends, all of us, we so desperately want to hear those words from our Father. Son, well done. Daughter, well done. Good and faithful servant. 
enter into my joy, right? Please pray with me. God in heaven, you are the God of, of grace and of, and of adventure, of excitement. Lord, forgive us when we cower in fear. Forgive us, Lord, when we want to clutch on to what we have. Forgive us, Lord, when we turn to our own safety and comfort and we want to hide. But God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill us and empower us and enable us out of your abundant love, empower us to take risks and to invest ourselves in the lives of those around us. May we pick up the phone or, or video call someone or, or whatever. Um, drop off groceries, Lord. May you expand our imaginations and give us those radical ideas as well, Lord. The, the things that I've kind of listed just, quite honestly, they, they feel a little cliche. I, I don't want to downplay them, but God, expand our imaginations. May we be people who are absolutely brilliant with the grace that you've given us. Lord, we ask this for the glory of your name and for the glory of your kingdom. Amen.